Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to be talking to Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square, about his new book called The Innovation Stack. But before we do the interview, today is actually March 17th of 2020, and much of the world, including the Philadelphia area, has shut down non-essential businesses, and many, uh, if not most companies, have now asked people to work from home. At LeadX, there isn't much we can do on the health front, unfortunately, other than to just be good role models of social distancing. But in the spirit of supporting leaders around the world, we're doing our best to provide educational content and coaching for everyone who's now faced with working from home or leading remote teams. Last week, I personally recorded a webinar on my top tips for leading remote team members. LeadX has been a remote first workplace and my previous companies have all uh, had a healthy mix of in-office and remote workers and it never stopped us from having great growth and productivity and even winning some best place to work awards. So I recorded this webinar, which we've posted on our website and are making available free to everyone. So if you wanna uh, check that out, visit leadx.org, click on the resources menu and then on the webinars choice and you'll see it listed there. I also wanna remind everyone that I previously interviewed on the LeadX Leadership Show, Jason Freed from Basecamp about his book, Remote. So you can go to leadx.org and just search on Jason Freed, F-R-I-E-D, or go to leadx.org podcasts and scroll down. It was originally episode 006, literally the sixth episode. I think we're up to 360 now. Uh, so it's probably a laughably poor quality um, interview back then, but I know Jason's remote advice is golden. So I hope you'll check that out as well. And if you're a LeadX customer, please know we are quickly putting together an entire remote work action plan uh, curriculum with webinars, courses, book summaries, and weekly actions to you know, excel in terms of workplace productivity at home and leading remote teams. Now, turning back to today's episode, Jim McKelvey's a serial entrepreneur, an inventor, artist, philanthropist. He's even deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And I'm interviewing him as the co-founder. He's the co-founder of Square. And Square's that company that makes that little credit card reader that you can stick in your iPhone or iPad to process credit card payments. It really revolutionized the credit card industry, the payment industry, and really empowered small businesses and solopreneurs to, you know, take um, any kind of card, you know, very, very affordably. Now, what's also interesting is he, I mentioned he's the co-founder of Square. Well, his partner is Jack Dorsey's. Jack Dorsey is, of course, known as the co-founder of Twitter. Um, you might realize or remember that Jack Dorsey is actually the CEO of both Twitter and Square, uh, the only CEO of two publicly traded companies. And we sort of get a treat because I ask him about that uh, at the end. I asked Jim McKelvey about working with with Jack and uh, what Jack should do about, you know, running both of these companies because he's taken some heat from it lately. Twitter has been underperforming and some people think Jack needs to pick, you know, one company or the other. 
In this interview, you're going to hear Jim talk about innovation as a series of problem solving steps that sort of stack on top of each other. And he says that anyone can tackle big problems and make a huge difference by applying this philosophy of developing the innovation stack. Enjoy the interview. Let me officially welcome you to the LeadX Leadership Show. <laughs> Thank you. Now, Jim, we, I was talking before we started this official part of the interview that not only did I read the book, but um, I, I love the book. Now, I've done, uh, I don't know the exact count, but you're like the 365th author or something like that that I've interviewed over the last three years. And I don't think I've ever done this before. I actually want to read the very first paragraph from your book because it's a great business book, The Innovation Stack. Again, you know, building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time. But I want my listeners to understand that like this is a fun read. It doesn't read like a traditional business book. And you got me. So right in the introduction, you say, you write, suddenly we won. For over a year, a giant monster had chased us through the graveyard of corporate corpses. Amazon, the scariest monster on the planet, had copied our product, undercut our price, and was going to eat our brains. Then, <laughs> without warning, on Halloween in 2015, the monster stopped the attack and handed us a treat. And then you go on to ask, was this just luck or had something else happened? And that was really, this book is about your journey at Square, and then the what happened when Amazon challenged you, and you looking back about why why didn't you guys lose, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's I mean, uh, first of all, it's not a memoir. It's not my story. It's how sort of living through what I lived through confused me enough to do research um, because I couldn't explain how we beat Amazon. That was the whole thing that uh, that mystified me, which was simply that this company who always wins when Amazon copies your product, undercuts your price, and adds the Amazon brand, they always win. It doesn't matter if it's diapers or servers. Like it's, it's never been the case that I've found a company at our stage that survived a direct attack by Amazon. Now, you know, Google's doing okay, and <laughs> arguably uh, Netflix will stand up to them, but like little companies, never. So I had to answer that question, and the answer was very hard to find, and it led me on this search and when I finally got the answer, I was like, oh my God, I got to write a book. But I didn't want to write a business book. So right. it doesn't read like a business book. I know it's published as a business book and you're probably, you know, used to business books and it is kind of businessy. But like when I discovered these stories, I wanted to write a comic book because the stories of companies in this situation are great, epic, comic material. You have murders you have Nazis, you have destructions of major cities, like you have uh, uh, evil gangs and, and, and just explosions and people who wore capes, like, like literally they wore capes. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, like, why am I trying to tell this without a pen in my hand? So I did a, so my first draft of the book um, was this sort of schizophrenic comic slash business book. So it would go comic, 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 and then it would switch to some, some, uh, some business. And that's how it was going until I got to, um, Herb Kelleher's chapter. So Herb, the legendary founder of Southwest Airlines, who I thought would be thrilled to be portrayed as sort of a superhero. I asked Herb if he would let me sort of render the interview that he gave me in comic form. And Herb said, no, 
<laughs> and I was, and, and I was like, this was unbelievable because Herb has a great, or I should say had, he has a great sense of humor. Like he, the guy was always laughing and he, he said, no. And I was like, oh, well, he just doesn't understand. So I sent him like examples of the comics and he just wrote back to me the nicest letter. He said, Jim, I'm old. To me, comics are not serious. And what you're talking about uh, affects the lives of hundreds of thousands of our employees and millions of our customers. And I just don't think that it's a serious enough treatment. And uh, so I backed off because of Herb Kelleher and also my publisher. Uh, <laughs> so my publisher, <laughs> when they got the draft of the book, which was still half comic, um, th they sat me down in a windowless room in Manhattan. And, and yeah, they gave me the conference room like it doesn't have the view of the skyline, right? <laughs> and they said, you idiot, you you realize that most people listen to books on audio these days and, and the ones that don't read it on a four inch screen and your comics are just not going to show up in either of those formats. So just kiss 90% of your audience goodbye. And, and I had to go, well, I guess you're right. So, so it is a book it's written. Um, but, uh, but I went ahead and made the comic anyway. And if you buy the book, you go to jimmckelvey.com. I'll give you the comic. So the comic is just for chapter nine. But it is, uh, you know, it's got an explosion, uh, <laughs> uh, an evil gang, a murder, uh, like, you know, good stuff. I love this. So let me, Jim, let me, let me start, though, at the beginning. Uh, obviously, anybody involved in, in tech and, and certainly small uh, businesses are familiar with Square. But for any of my listeners who, who are not familiar with the company Square, take us back. I mean, first of all, how did you come up with the idea for the company? And what was the original device that is now pretty legendary. Well, the original idea was uh, Jack Dorsey and I were just going to start a company and he and I had no idea what we were going to do. Uh, we're both from, from St. Louis. Uh, we both had worked together at a company that I actually still own. I, I, I was Jack's second boss. He, uh, <laughs> he came to work with me after he uh, left the employment of his, of his mother at a coffee shop that she had. Um, but when Jack was 16 years old, I guess 15, he was 15 years old. We started work with me. Um, we were, uh, a team and uh, we decided to get the band back together, uh, you know, 15 years later. And so we started uh, a company, but the only thing we knew was that we wanted to build something for mobile technology. So we hired an engineer out of Apple who was going to start in two weeks. So that, that gave us two weeks to figure out what we were going to do. And in that time, neither one of us came up with a good idea, but I was back at my glass blowing studio. So I'm a glass blower on top of all the other junk. Um, I, I make, glass and stuff that nobody needs. And I love selling it, especially if it's been sitting on my shelf for years. <laughs> and this lady called to get rid of this piece that I thought was hideous, but it was uh, like, I couldn't, I couldn't let on that I really hated the piece. So I had a really high price tag on it. Uh, and she wanted this thing and I couldn't accept her payment because all she had was an American Express card. And so I lost this sale. I was pissed off. And then I, um, I called Jack and I said, we need to fix this problem for little guys like me, because I'm sick of losing sales. I'm sick of not being part of the banking system. I'm sick of not having the tools that the big companies do. So um, Jack thought that was interesting and that's what became Square. And, and so, and again, I think most people have, have probably seen the device, even if they don't know, this is maybe if you're at a, uh, a small business or an independent coffee shop and you go to buy your coffee, sometimes they'll have, they'll take out, you know, they'll have an iPhone or iPad and this little white square device sticking out the top of their slide in your credit card. Um, uh, and, and you innovated this, this idea 
Um, w- one thing as a fellow entrepreneur at a, a smaller scale that I was surprised at is you guys launched into this business in the financial services before fintech was really hot, right? There was no such thing as fintech when we started. And so you launch in and you, again, had me laughing out loud in a chapter where like it was day one or three and you discovered, hey, everything we're doing is illegal. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was not laughing when I first <laughs> discovered that. But in hindsight, it is kind of funny when you discover that the business that you've set up to do is illegal on the first day. But it wasn't even that. It was like hyper illegal. Like it was like I, I finally stopped counting when I got to 17 laws, regulations, and rules that we were in violation of with every single transaction. But if you think about the finance world, um, banking is highly regulated. There are a lot of laws about know your customer and OFAC and foreign assets and uh, SARS. And I, like, they're just all sorts of crazy things you got to do. And then Visa has rules. MasterCard has rules. Every bank has rules. The auditors have rules. Like Everybody has all these rules. And um, you have to comply with those or they don't let you play in the sandbox. And so we were sort of hurled out of the sandbox uh, on the first day. And that's, interestingly enough, what led Square to become Square. Because I think that first day, if, they'd been, if, they'd, if there'd been this easy way for us to connect to the system and just build this little system that I wanted, um, we would not have built an innovation stack. We would have just copied what everybody else was doing because copying is not a bad idea. Um, but we couldn't copy. There was nothing for us to copy. And so because we were in violation of all these rules, uh, we had to get very creative. And it took us a year and a half to finally either get compliant with those rules or get those rules changed. How long before you actually launched a product? 18 months. 18 months to so, launch. Well, the- I, I'm sorry. 18 months to launch a legal product. Okay. <laughs> we had the basic product working in three weeks. So it was, I could take your credit card, use my iPhone and suck money out of your bank account and into my bank account uh, at, at three weeks. So we had, every, we had all the tech working in three weeks. But it took another year and a half to get all yeah. the non-tech stuff figured out. Yeah. All the regulations, all the. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in round numbers, it took us a month to build the product and a year and a half to make it compliant with the world. So I want to jump to, so we can get into this concept of the innovation stack, which of course the book is about. You said at about year five, Amazon, giant scary monster Amazon launches not just something similar, not a not a not an alternative solution. I mean, they copied. I mean, it, 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 you you said they ba- it basically looked like our device except it was black. It was cheaper, and they had live support, which you didn't have. Yep, yep. They uh, they came at us hard. Um, they. I mean, what can I say? Uh, they did a pretty good job because they're Amazon, right? They they ripped off our hardware, uh, ripped off our software, kind of, um, and then undercut our price. And that was what we, th- they thought that was that. Um, and I, I can't express how terrifyingly lonely it is to be attacked by Amazon because it's not as if you're sitting there in this group of other companies that's been attacked by Amazon. Because if you look at the subset of companies that have been attacked by Amazon, they don't exist. They either disappear or become part of Amazon. So we looked for some peer group and there was none. Um, So that tells you something. It tells you that you never are gonna win this fight. Um, So we had some very tense meetings where we decided 
what we would do. And we very carefully examined all of the um, things we were doing. It's, it, it looks, it's, like, it's like getting uh, a, a terminal diagnosis from your physician. And he says, uh, okay, Kevin, uh, you got six months to live. And all of a sudden you go, well, what's important to me? You know, right. Uh, and, and that was sort of the, 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 the corporate feeling. And um, we looked at all the stuff we were doing and we didn't change a thing. We didn't even cut our price to match Amazon's price. We, we just looked at everything we we're doing and said, you know, everything we're doing, we're doing for a reason. And that reason is almost always our customer. Um, even the, even not lowering our price was something that was customer centric because like we couldn't see a way to serve our customer and lose money on every transaction. We were already losing money on some transactions, but basically using Amazon's math, we would lose money on nearly every transaction. And we just thought this is insane. There's no way we can do it. So we didn't even cut, we didn't even match their price. And what happened amazingly uh, was a year and a half later, Amazon backed off. They quit. And, and by the way, they were cool about the way they quit. Like Amazon, so for all my, for all my sort of ripping on Amazon, <laughs> and by the way, uh, uh, the irony of me trying to like pimp a book that is sold primarily on Amazon. At the same time, I'm sitting here trashing Amazon who like controls my ratings and all this other stuff. Like that is not lost on me. So for the Amazon executives listening to this podcast, let me tell you that I am publicly acknowledging how cool you guys were when you gave up attacking Square. Because what Amazon did when they quit was they mailed all of their former customers a little white Square reader. And we were amazed. I mean, it was just the coolest way to go out. Well, what was the, do you remember the actual day or when someone said, hey? Yeah, it was Halloween. It was Halloween. Like it was like the eve of Halloween. It's like October 30th. Amazon's like, we're out. We're going to send every one of our customers a square reader. You guys win. And I mean, you know, happy Halloween. Like, like that, that is, that is the best that was the best present I've ever gotten on any holiday. <laughs> Jim, I don't think you you talk about this in, in the book. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that Amazon would invest everything they did to to take you guys on. At at any point, had they approached you or Jack to say, "Hey, we're kind of interested in this idea too. Let's uh, let's acquire you or let's make an investment or something." I mean, did they try to work with you directly at first? Uh, not directly. They did have some conversations. I know that there were some high-level conversations. Yeah. And we thought that they wanted to work with us because Amazon calls and says, hey, you guys might be a good product. You know, right. like, so there were some conversations. I wasn't in those meetings. Yeah. So I don't exactly know what they were saying. Um, and uh, But yeah, I mean, when Amazon calls and invites you up, you show up. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it's like being summoned to the white house, right? You, yeah. you, you know, you, you go, right. Um, so there's a, uh, uh, yeah, we thought, we thought at one point they might be a partner. Uh, it turned out they wanted to become a competitor. Um, but then ultimately I think they turned into a better partner than anything. So I guess it kind of worked out, but answering the question of why they didn't succeed. Right took me the better part of three years. And, and that's how you you figured it out, looked at the data and said, it wasn't because we 
had one innovation. We had an innovation stack, right? Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. So I didn't know what an innovation stack was. So the first thing I did was I looked for a peer. I looked for some other company that had this situation. So first of all, I called all the companies that Amazon had, had eviscerated and I talked to their founders. And um, they all wanted to talk to me, but like a support group. Like this was like Alcoholics Anonymous or Amazon is Amazon Anonymous <laughs> because it was all anonymous. Like none of them, you'll, you'll read the book. None of them are quoted in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell some of their stories very obliquely without attribution or anything. But I will tell you, every fact in that book has been, has been researched and verified by multiple sources. But I can't quote those sources because they all are still terrified of Amazon. These are individuals who said, I better not say anything about what really happened in my company's case with Amazon. So none of them will go on the record. Um, so I couldn't find a peer in my contemporaries. And so uh, I started looking throughout history for like maybe there were historical examples. Well, it turns out looking through history, there are hundreds of them. And when I started finding historic examples of companies that had done what we did, which was basically create a new market by doing a bunch of different things, which I call the innovation stack. We'll talk about that in a second. And then get attacked viciously by incumbent competitors or governments or, uh, you know, startups. I mean, they just get attacked. Um, And they always won. And not only did they always win, but they almost always won without having to do anything. They didn't have to change anything, which is amazing to me. So, um, you know, when United Airlines attacked Southwest Airlines, uh, that wasn't a fair fight. Like United was the number two carrier in the country. United or Southwest at the time was still kind of a startup. And Southwest wiped the floor with them. I mean, the joke about United, which they had an airline called TED. And, and the joke was that TED stands for the end of United, right? <laughs> you know, or United without you and I on board. I mean, like it was <laughs> like the, the, the humor was vicious, but, but all of a sudden, Kevin, I saw these, I saw these companies that had our same pattern. And I was like, my God, what are they doing? And I looked and, and my God, they, they all did the same thing we did. And they built this innovation stack. So, so an innovation stack, not to you know, hold, hold you guys in suspense, it's a very simple idea. And that is invention, innovation, typically is not one or two things. It is 10, 20, 40 different things that you have learned to do differently. Um, and as you evolve these things as a startup, you, uh, they, they don't evolve in a nice linear sort of bullet listy sort of way. They involve in this sort of messy swirl where one thing you do, one thing you do causes another problem. You got to solve that other problem. So you have to invent something new to solve that problem, but that affects the first problem. And then there's the third problem, the 14th problem, and the 14th problem causes the second problem to disappear. But now the third problem is twice as big. Like it just, you know, but in the process of doing this, these, these solutions, these innovations all sort of co-evolve. And they do so in a way that when it is finally finished, you have something that is ridiculously durable. Like it, it literally can run an industry for as long as you obey the rules. And then what I did was I studied companies who built these innovation stacks and um, they all make massive amounts of money, but some of them maintain these leads for generations, whereas other than give them up over time. And so I, I did some analysis on that and basically <clears throat> wanted to 
I, I wanted to get the message out because the, the other interesting thing that I found, and this is probably probably the most profound insight in the book is not the innovation stack. It's, it's that the people behind these world-changing companies were basically unqualified to do all the stuff they did. Mm. So biggest bank in the world started by a kid who dropped out of school at age 14 or 15. Like he never finished high school. Builds the biggest bank in the world. Oh, by the way, before building a bank, was he in the finance world? No, he was a produce vendor. He sold lettuce, okay? Biggest bank in the world. Um, biggest furniture store in the world. Um, furniture manufacturer in the world. Uh, 17-year-old kid started that one. Uh, Square, uh, Jackson massage therapist. I'm a glass blower. I mean, how the hell are we qualified, right? Like, there's zero qualifications there. Like, uh, uh, Herb Kelleher started Southwest Airlines. He was a lawyer. Like, he was just the guy that was trying to represent Southwest in court. He didn't know anything about the airline industry. And again and again and again. So, when I was writing the book, this light went on in my head, and I was like, oh, my God. What I'm seeing here is this path for ordinary people, for just you and me and, you know, frankly, anybody to do, to have world-changing impact if they, if they stick at it long enough and understand the pattern. So that's why I wrote it. Let me make sure we're giving the listeners some examples and we'll, we'll start, start with Square. So yeah. From the outside, a, a naive outsider like myself, <laughs> if I would have looked at the Square device and the company, I'd say, oh, that was innovative. They took the credit card swipey machine and crunched it down into a little device you could plug on your iPhone. It was one invention. They took the swiper, shrunk it, and you could stick it on your iPhone. That's their innovation. But there were many, obviously, many, many, many more innovations in the stack. But what were some of them for Square? Uh, well, so in the book, I recount 14, and I probably can't recall all 14 off the top of my head, but uh, uh, one was the way we did sign up. So you could click a license agreement that was uh, like any software license agreement, as opposed to a 42-page, six-point uh, type contract, which was typical when we started. But because our license agreement was non-compliant with what the banks write, uh, were requiring, now our people weren't trusted by the banks. So we had to essentially put our own balance sheet between us and the banks. So it was like, your license agreement is with Square and our agreement is with the banks. Well, then it turns out that that connection to the banks is not easy. So you have to get the banks to change the way they behave. Um, and then because our system is for small merchants, we had to simplify it because if you, if you know anything about credit cards, they're very, very complicated beasts. They have different prices at different times. They have different reward structures. They have different ways you have to submit. They have different ways they settle the funds. They have different fees. All this stuff is just overwhelmingly complicated to a normal person. So we had to simplify all that. We had to change the way people were getting paid. Um, also at the time, uh, people were getting paid very slowly. So it would, you'd run a card and then you would get paid you know, three or four days later. Um, well, this is ridiculous. Like we have electronic commerce in this country but the credit card system was still moving at the speed of carbon paper. So there was no reason to do this because the banking system is all electronic these days. So we, we settled funds faster than we were receiving it. In other words, we would give you your money faster than we ourselves were getting paid. We have massive negative flow uh, at Square. So every time we 
every time we charge every time you made a sale, we would actually lose money temporarily. Um, so we had to like make this up in volume. Um, so then we took all the friction out. Um, so we took all the, uh, all the contracts out. So there are contracts with Square. You can try it. You can quit. Uh, we took the costs out. It's free. Uh, uh, and we took the customer support out. So this is, this is sort of a big deal. Um, in the early days, if you wanted help, we didn't give it to you except through email. If you had a big problem, you could email us. But there was no phone line. And that was by design because we designed our system from the ground up to be like Gmail. So I don't know. Do you use Gmail? All the time. Yeah. Have you ever called Gmail customer support? Never have. Never. I mean, me, me either. I've been using Gmail for almost 20 years now. It's, it's this thing that I run my life on and I can't call a Gmail supporter, you know, um, but it works. And so we use that as a model. And we said, let's build a system that is so good and so simple and so obvious. It has all the features you need and none of the stupid stuff that you don't even have to call us. So that not having customer support was a real um, innovation, both for us and for our customers, because it forced us to be super strict about what we would and wouldn't do with our system. So all of the craziness, all the complexity, we just pulled out. So, I mean, that's a bunch of stuff that, that was in Square's Innovations Act. There, there are a few other things, but, but if you think about that, that's a lot of stuff that's different all at once. And, and just to, to be able to contrast, um, give us one more example. You referenced uh, what was then called the Bank of Italy. What, were, what was the Bank of Italy and what were some, uh, some pieces of the innovation stack back then? Uh, so the Bank of Italy was the perfect parallel that I found for Square. So what happened when I started looking through history, it turns out history is full of innovation stacks. Like it's just full of them. And so I saw this pattern. I was like, oh, well, now I can choose any examples that illustrate my point. So the first thing I looked for was another Square. I, I, I wanted to find a company that did exactly what Square did with one exception. And the exception is critical. And the exception was they couldn't use technology. In other words, it couldn't be a modern company where, like, look, if you get a technical advantage these days, your growth can be turbocharged. And that is almost so powerful that it overwhelms everything else. So if you have network effect or viral growth, um, then those effects are so powerful that they dwarf bad management. They dwarf like it's like you like all other experiments cease because that's the that's the dominant factor. So, forgetting a tech company, I wanted to find another square that had done the same thing, and it turns out that this produce vendor um, who retired at age thirty because he made so much money selling lettuce that he decided he never had to work again. Um, guy named A.P. Giannini was my counterpart a century earlier. Um, and he, uh, like I, uh, was unqualified to start a, a finance business, a money, money moving business. Uh, he decided to start a bank. Uh, Jack and I decided to start a credit card company, but our paths were almost identical. We didn't know anything about the market, uh, but at the time, banking looked a lot like credit cards looked in 20, uh, 2010 when Jack and I were, were doing Square, which was, it was only for the elite. Uh, it was a corrupt system. Um, it was very clubbish. Uh, the rates were 
insane. There were a bunch of things that didn't make sense. And Giannini went through fixing all these things um, using an innovation stack. And he built Bank of America, um, which well, he, he built the Bank of Italy, which is now called Bank of America. And at the time he was building it, it was the biggest bank in the world. Okay, so think about that. Chase, JP Morgan, um, you know, uh, all the New York banks, all the you know, BNY Mellons, all, all those big industrial, you know, banks, they got their ass kicked by a produce vendor. He wiped the floor with them because he had an innovation stack and they didn't. Do you think it's a prerequisite to not have experience in whatever you're trying to change the world in? Like if you're coming from a context, is it, can you, you know, it's hard to have that beginner's mind if you're coming from that industry already. Yeah. So beginner's mind is a super important quality, but I I look at it differently. um, Although it's the same concept. Uh, So expertise, let's talk about expertise for a minute. I believe that expertise is only possible in industries where the solutions have already been made by others. Okay, so let's talk about, pick any industry. You wanna open, you wanna open a coffee shop. My friend runs a coffee shop. Um, Guess what? You can go to a convention where they teach you how to run a coffee shop. Like if you know zero about coffee shops and you wanna become an expert in coffee before you open your coffee shop, you can do that. Like literally you you can buy every part of that business. Um, you can buy consultants, you can hire, you can everything. I'm sure there are even coffee coaches, right? There, as a matter of fact, I know there's one because I, I have a friend who consults for coffee shops. <laughs> Howard Lerner helped, helped you know, the guys who make Blue Bottle coffee. Like my yeah. friend Howard coached the guys who started Blue Bottle. <laughs> like, so there you go. There's a coffee coach, right? right. So, so that's, an interesting in, that's an interesting business because you can have expertise. You can be an expert there. If you're doing something that has never been done, there are no experts, okay? So uh, what's like a coffee business? Well, how about a marijuana dispensary, okay? Those things just became legal like in the last couple of years. That was a business where the first guy who did it, uh, he or she couldn't copy. There's nothing to copy. You don't know, like you can't sit there, well, I'm gonna figure all this out. Cause I mean, you could copy some of it. You kind of say, well, maybe you need to store it. But like, all of the things that you have to do, like maybe you have to lock down your supplies or maybe you got to deal with the mafia or maybe it's not the mafia, but it's the banks and the government. And I don't know. I've never frankly been into one of those places, but, um, but like it's, that's a business where you can't copy. So expertise, I'm not knocking expertise, get it if you can get it, but also understand that there are certain new problems that nobody has ever solved where you will only be able to solve them by doing something new. And there are no experts for something that is new. And that's sort of the profound insight. If, if, I, if I have one in the book, it's that there are no experts of the new. And that if you look at the, you look at the book, um, I have a person in mind who I wrote this for. The whole book was written with one person in mind as I was writing the chapters because I know a person who is incredibly qualified to do amazing things. And she, she's smart, she's hardworking, she you know, like heart's in the right place, she's, she's brilliant, okay? But I've watched her time and again disqualify herself 
when she comes up to go, she comes up against a problem that I think she could solve, but she says, well, I'm not qualified to do this. Now her whole life, she, like the rest of us, has been trained to be qualified before we do something. Like that's just smart. Like don't jump in the water if you don't know how to swim, take swimming lessons, be qualified before you jump in the water, you know? Um, well, I'm saying, yeah, be qualified if you can't be qualified, but don't disqualify yourself if you're doing something new because nobody's qualified to do something new. If you're doing something new, qualification goes out the window. And what I see in my friend, and it's heartbreaking, is I see her not solving problems that I think she could solve. Don't know that she could solve. I can't prove that she could solve it, but I think she's disqualifying herself far too often. And, and I wrote the book because I was like, how many millions of people do the same damn thing? I mean, how many of us, when we come up against a problem that is what I call a perfect problem, a problem that is solvable, it can be solved, but it has never been solved yet, but it can be done. And you give up because you're lacking some credential? Dude, there ain't never gonna be a credential. You're never gonna get that credential. And I, I wanted to just sort of hold the hands of the listeners and say, look, um, here are people who have done it before you. Here is what their journey is like. And as a matter of fact, the original title to the book, which, which I never got past like the first edit, was uh, First Steps Off a of Flat Earth. Because what I wanted to do was I wanted to describe how scary it is to do something that has never been done, but also how fun it is to do something that's never been done. And, and, and you say, well, wait, you can't have scary and fun at the same time. And I say, yeah, I mean, look, you can. Like, you can actually do something that's terrifying, but still have a ball doing it. I think you answered the question I was going to come at because it was going back to sort of how we started about you and Jack not really having any experience in this, a produce salesperson starting a bank. And entrepreneurs will often jump in, will take that first step off the flat earth. I have friends who are entrepreneurs who claim that we're literally like crazy. Like there's something off about us to, to be willing to do that. I've had yeah. others say yeah. it's genetic, you know, oh, it's just some kind of weird switch that lets people do that or, or, or not. Um, I, I, a lot of people have different explanations, but in a way you're saying, look, it isn't even like an innovation gene. It isn't that you're more clever. It's, you keep talking about problem solving. So rather than feeling like we need to know it already or be masters, we need to at least have confidence that we're good problem solvers, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, a little self-confidence is helpful. Um, but I would say that self-confidence is sort of a secondary characteristic of an entrepreneur. I think survival instinct is the number one. Okay. You're just, you just refuse to die. Um, and what I mean by that is you don't quit before you've exhausted all potential avenues. And the, the thing that I've seen time and again, and I, I mean, look, what, what motivates a person? Who knows? I don't even know what motivates me, but I, I've got a pretty good guess what, what, what motivates me. And since I'm the only person I can speak for, I'll speak for myself. I am not a bold person. I am not a guy who looks at stuff and says, I can do it and I am not afraid. I look at, I'm a guy who at best gets upset with problems and wants to find a solution as is impatient and, and I commit myself to the solution and then I get into horrible trouble, right? 
but then I don't quit because I'm afraid. Like I'm afraid to quit. I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to give up. Um, and what I saw in some of these other entrepreneurs was this odd quality where they refuse to die. So the, the great example is the founder of Ikea, uh, Ingrid Comprad. I mean, they, like this guy was persecuted. Like they kicked him out of his country. You know, they banned him from the trade fairs. They wouldn't let him sell his furniture. Like, I, imagine that. I mean, imagine being so, so you know, so ostracized that you, you like you can't sell a couch. <laughs> you know, they must hate you pretty bad if they, they won't even let you, you sell bad. a couch. It's like take those cushions and get out of here. You know, um, but you know, these are people who who just had this survival instinct. They didn't quit. So um, I. I don't give much advice to people. I mean, I know you guys are in the executive coaching thing and I should probably <laughs> sign up because I probably could use it. Um, but if you don't have a coach or somebody or like a partner who you know, keeps you motivated and on the track, um, fear can be a good coach. Like just, just put yourself in a situation that's dire enough that you have to perform and then uh, you'll keep going. Um, now that's not a, I'm, I'm not recommending that, but I'm saying that the pattern that I saw at a lot of these entrepreneurial companies at, as, is at one point or another, they were under so much stress from being attacked that it created this, well, Herb Kelleher despise, de, describes it as a warrior spirit because Southwest Airlines got attacked viciously. And he said it galvanized the whole company. It, it's what created that Southwest culture. And, and by the way, if you flew Southwest in the early days, those planes were fun. They were like, it, it was like a party at 500 knots. <laughs> Let me shift with uh, our last few minutes here. Uh, I'm curious for, you know, general, general career advice. Uh, you were at Square for a long time. You became chairman. Um, when did you decide to leave? Why did you decide to leave? So I, I became chairman because I gave myself the title. <laughs> like, like I did, it wasn't like some meritocracy that I rose <laughs> to the ranks and became chairman. I, I mean, that sounds, no, no, I started with the, I started with the title as Jack was CEO. And, and then we sort of added a bunch of triangles underneath us. So don't make it sound like I'm some great manager. I'm not a good manager, <laughs> but look, uh, I don't have management advice. I'm, I'm a terrible manager. I always, my management advice is go find somebody who's a good manager if you're as bad as I am and pair up with them. Um, you know, Jack is actually a good manager. He's, he's, he's very methodical. Um, he likes process. Um, uh, he's a clear thinker. Um, and uh, that makes a good manager. And he manages two companies. And I'm not a good manager. <laughs> but you want me the hell out of there. So, um, yeah, my management advice is don't hire me as a manager or anyone like me, just get us out. I'm good at starting stuff. You mentioned Jack uh, is is running both Twitter and Square these days. Um, I actually wrote about him several years ago in one of my books on, on productivity, talking about uh, some of his advice about compartmentalizing, but also very hard work, uh, you know, in, in, as he ran two companies, as he continues to run two companies. And he's been taking a lot of heat for that by certain investors lately. Um, like, how can you, how can you really be the CEO of two companies? You got to really pick one or the other. Any comments on, on Jack's ability to be CEO of two publicly traded companies at the same time? Well, I've got a couple of comments. Uh, number one, uh, Jack is single. I don't know if you've got a family. I know where you're going with this. I mean, like, Family takes 
a lot of time and I love my family and I wouldn't give up my family. As a matter of fact, I left Squares full time when my son was born because I didn't want to be the guy who never knew his kids. Um, so that's what sort of led me out of Square. Um, but Jack doesn't have kids. Uh, and he has a little more time and he has a little more freedom over his time than somebody who's uh, in, a, in, a, in a relationship. So that's, that's thing one. But the other thing I say is, look, if, if you don't think Jack's doing a kick-ass job at Square, so and I can vouch for that. As far as his job at Twitter, uh, look at the pattern. OK, they kicked him out the first time. He was a he was a co-founder of the company. They kicked him out the first time. He comes back as the executive chairman. OK, uh, they kick him out the second time as executive chairman, he comes back as a CEO, right? Like you kick him out the third time, he's gonna come back as like some <laughs> godlike being that will be in surround. Like every time you kick Jack Dorsey out of Twitter, he comes back bigger and stronger. So like, even if you don't like what Jack's doing, I think you gotta let him run his business. Right? <laughs> so so there's my argument uh, for letting Jack stay at the helm of his company. And, 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 and actually, in all seriousness, Twitter is a very weird company. Twitter has an innovation stack. Twitter has a bunch of things that like normal managers might not do that well at Twitter. And they've tried that. Like it's not these, like these guys aren't smart that they've tried other people. It doesn't work. So let the guy run his companies. He's doing a good job. Yeah. I, I, I certainly don't have any insights into uh, Twitter or, or Jack, but I think it's uh, really ridiculous to, to knock a CEO based on like a splitting of time or number of hours, because uh, do you really want to think of your CEO as an hourly worker? Oh, he's only putting in 20 hours this week, or he's only giving us 40 hours this week. And then he's moonlighting somewhere else. That's not, that's not what you're, you want. That's not why you've hired a CEO is to, to put in hours. It's about their mind. It's about strategy. It's about attracting talent. It's all these other things. Yeah, I mean, for, with that logic, we should only hire single people, right? Right. I right. never want to hire somebody who's married because they wouldn't be fully focused on. Yeah, you know, like I want somebody who's so desperate and you know soulless that all they have is work. <laughs> no, that's insane. Yeah. You know, but that's the extension of that logic. Yeah, that's right. Jim, we have to um, wrap up the program. Again, a very entertaining, insightful book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Any final words? And make sure you tell us, Jim, where can we find out more information about the book and stay in touch with the other things you're involved with? So more information is at jimmckelvey.com. I apologize. I don't use social media uh, very, very well or very often. Um, but uh, jimmckelvey.com is uh, the place where all information is on the book. You can get the, the free comic book will be there. Um, and uh, I, I guess my final word is this is a book for somebody you know, because everybody knows somebody who has this great potential and disqualifies themselves. And that's really who, who the book was written for. And I was hoping that if I could get the word out in some mass market, which I think a book is the appropriate way to do it, um, that the world's a better place because we'll have more problem solvers who are unafraid of new problems. And new problems are scary, I get it, um, but solving them can be super fun and super rewarding. Jim, perfect message uh, to end on, and thanks so much for sharing it with uh, our audience at the LeadX Leadership Show. Kevin, this has been great. You asked great questions, and thank you again. Thanks. Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take a minute 
leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings are invaluable for attracting new listeners. And I like to convert those listeners into leaders because you know, I'm on a mission to spark 100 million leaders in the next 10 years. And if you wanna become the boss everyone fights to work for and nobody wants to leave, check out the LeadX platform with Coach Amanda at leadx.org. And if you have 10 or more managers who could use some binge-worthy training, send me an email at info at leadx.org, L-E-A-D-X dot O-R-G, and we'll talk about getting you set up with a totally free pilot for those managers. See if they like it. If they don't, that's fine. We go away. Part as friends. But if they love it, you've just found yourself a new resource for them. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How are you going to lead today? <laughs>